You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Well, welcome to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kahn, and today we're going to be talking about getting your own household in order. Now, today we are trained to think almost exclusively in globalist terms. And so it is fashionable among the current generation to believe that true and meaningful change occurs primarily through the championing of large-scale and societal causes. As a recent study from Business Insider points out, millennials, or those born between 1981 and 1996, believe that the 10 most serious issues facing the world today are all global issues. Now, at the top of their list was climate change, and following that were, according to them, pressing issues like these, world poverty, education, and government corruption. So based on current events, you might even add to that list racial tension, the coronavirus, international or national banking systems. And again, any number of legal encroachments by the state during this time of national crisis. What's most intriguing to me about this Business Insider study is that not a single issue on this list relates to personal responsibility or individual morality among those polled. So if you're looking at the American individual in these generations, which are present among us, or you're looking at the news cycle, The reality is everybody's going to say the problems are out there and the problems are not with personal responsibility or myself. So instead of focusing on areas within the purview of an individual's actual control, things like personal finances, sexuality, family relations, bodily disciplines, or the cultivation of moral virtue... The current generation at this current moment believes that the biggest problems are fundamentally out there. So in this episode, I want to examine the question, why is this the case and how should we respond to it? Well, first and foremost, as Jordan Peterson has pointed out in his book, 12 Rules for Life, it's much easier to project an image of moral superiority to our peers by championing wide-scale causes than it is to exercise discipline and self-control over our own lives. In other words, it's much easier to appear self-righteous through the public stance that maybe we take on social media than it is to actually order our individual conduct according to moral virtue. And we all know this to some level, don't we? Changing your own life is hard. Just try to lose weight. Try to get in shape. Try to balance your budget and get your finances in order. These things are very difficult. Slapping a Blackout Tuesday image in your profile picture on Facebook, however, takes almost no effort, but it virtue signals to other people, look how righteous I am. Now, as a result of all of this, many folks live morally ruinous and destructive lives, while at the same time loudly demanding that other people take responsibility for things like climate change, government transparency, better education, and a laundry list of rights attributed mainly to minority groups. In other words, anyone who's not a white Christian 
male. Now, the great irony of all of this is that our generation is almost completely morally bankrupt. And yet, if you ask them, what are the big problems? Climate change. Greta Thunberg told me so. And so we believe a little girl and we reject these basic wisdom principles. So change is always sought through political action, institutional mandate, and massive organizational movements. Well, how are we going to change the world? We're going to start another bureaucracy. And we're going to create an endless mountain of paperwork. And we're going to throw lots of money at it. I'm sure that will be how society changes. But here's the irony, as I said before, about our current generation. The same folks that cannot figure out which bathroom to use, who do little more than occupy a couch in their government-funded, low-income apartment complex while smoking pot and sleeping around and siphoning funds from a welfare state, the same people, perhaps, who engage in self-destructive sexual practices that lead to their own suicidal thoughts and depression, and others who consume copious amounts of alcohol or food, they engage in drug use, both prescription and otherwise. Well, all of this is revealing a culture and a people who are willing to live in communities that are decaying while they spend their most fervent energy in exactly the wrong places, crying for other people, the government and institutions, to do something. Have you ever noticed in American culture that when the coronavirus happened, people were not, for the most part, crying out to God on their knees in church on Sunday, pleading for the Lord to save us and to help us and to give us wisdom. No, what were they doing? They were pleading for the government to do more. And even businesses. I loved what Warren Buffett said. He said, listen, the coronavirus, just like any black swan event, right? It's like the tide going out. It just revealed who was swimming naked in the ocean, right? Those people's problems were revealed by the crisis. So a lot of those problems existed, and they existed because people do not take personal responsibility. Now, I love what G.K. Chesterton said. He had a famous quip, and it gets us right back on track where we need to be and where we need to start when we're examining this issue of how do we change our lives. So the Times London sent out an inquiry and they asked very prominent people this question. They said, what's wrong with the world today? And I want you to think for a minute, how would you answer that question? If somebody asked you that question, what would you say? What's wrong with the world today? Would you point to all these global issues? Would you talk about the banking crisis? Well, here's what Chesterton wrote. He said, dear sir, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. So again, the question was, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton wrote, I am. Now we're going to unpack what he meant. But it's very similar to what the American naval commander, Oliver Hazard Perry, once said after a battle. He said this, we have met the enemy and they are us. You see, what it gets to, both the Chesterton and the Perry quote, 
is a fundamental principle of life that wise men everywhere must come to terms with. And I want you to hear this because this is the main point. Change starts at home with the individual. Change starts at home with you. If you want to change the world, start by ordering your own existence. And realistically, if you can't do that very well, well, then you have no moral right to demand that the world change. We need to examine the things that are legitimately within our personal jurisdiction and our God-ordained authority sphere, and we need to look at them and examine them and then do what Jocko Willink says, we need to take extreme ownership. This is the deep meaning of personal responsibility. And this is from Jocko Willink's book. He says this, quote, the leader is truly and ultimately responsible for everything under his command, end quote. So again, if you want to change the world, start small. Don't start big. Start with yourself. Reorder your own habits, your own household, your own personal decisions. Get your own lifestyle in order. Perhaps you need to get stronger physically. Perhaps you need to lose weight. Perhaps you need to pay off your debts or to kick a destructive habit. Perhaps you need to work on your explosive anger or you need to rebuild the ruins of your marriage. For others, you need to get married, stop putting off the inevitable, stop having cold feet, start your family, and then begin training your own children. Now, I want to give you one example of how exactly this works. I was recently talking with a friend about the state of his failing small business. And I was trying to console him. I mean, I offered him several outs in this conversation. I said, listen, man, I know your business is failing, but there's a lot of uncontrollable factors involved, like the coronavirus and government shutdowns across the country. You can't control any of that. And I was shocked and amazed by my friend. He simply refused to deflect the blame from anyone else. Instead, he said this to me. I've failed miserably. I take full responsibility for everything that's happened on my watch and for not holding my employees and myself accountable. I hold myself personally responsible for not having a better track of our assets and for not having more reliable cash reserves. My friend told me, Eric, it's my responsibility. It's my responsibility and no one else's to bring order back to this company. It's on me. Now, what I thought afterwards, and I was, I was deeply touched by this moment, I thought, this is a man who understands where to start with himself, with extreme ownership, with personal responsibility. So here's the thing. If you can order your own life well, well, then you have a firm foundation to start addressing issues one step at a time outside your own backyard. But if you can't order your own life well, and be honest, men, then you have no right to assume moral responsibility for greater areas of influence in the communities around you. Now, because we ignore this principle, we have the alternative. And it's this reality. We have in our culture a sanctimonious and widespread hypocrisy. Our culture is oversaturated with the metaphorical equivalent 
of obese people trying to lecture society about health, nutrition, and fitness. You see, our own houses are on fire, yet we're running around the globe piously lecturing others on the need for legislative action to mandate the placement of fire extinguishers and smoke detectors in every six square feet of inhabitable space. And I want you to hear this as you think about your own life, as you think about do you or do you not order your own existence well, this kind of thing is nothing but rank hypocrisy. If that's you, if you're going around the world telling other people how to live, if you're super active on Facebook, but you're not willing to do the work in your own life, well, it's rank hypocrisy. And so here's the problem. For so many of us and so many in our culture, none of this strikes us for the glaring absurdity that it is. Now, in his book, as I mentioned before, 12 Rules for Life, Jordan Peterson argues rightly that we have no legitimate right to criticize the world before we first set about getting our own households in perfect order. And when you recognize that something's amiss in the world, and there is a lot wrong, there's oppression, there's suffering, there's corporate mismanagement, when you see these things begin at home, that's not often our knee-jerk reaction. So it takes intentionality and thought. It takes a strong will, but this is what we need to do. We need to start with ourselves. When you see problems in the world, don't blame capitalism. Don't blame the radical left. Don't blame the iniquity of your enemies or your friends. Don't go on a ranting spree after listening to Mark Levin or Michael Savage. Don't reorganize the state until you have ordered your own experience. Don't blame your parents for the way that you are. Own your mistakes and seek to make change where you can. And by the way, have some humility along the way. If you cannot bring peace to your own household, how dare you try to rule a city? No, instead, you need to set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. Now, of course, this is exactly the point that Scripture makes over and over and over again. It was Jesus himself who said, Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye? This is Matthew 7, verses 3 through 5. But you do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. Right? That's what Jesus says. If, if that's you, you're a hypocrite. And so here's what you need to do. He says, first, take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Right? It's a very, very simple principle, and that's what we're getting at in this show. Get your own household in order first. Start by organizing your own existence well, according to the Word of God. And when you can do that, then you're in a position to help other people and to start rebuilding in the culture. But you cannot look at the culture and say, oh my gosh, American culture is going to hell in a handbasket. And here's what needs to be done when your own life is a dumpster fire. You can't do that. It's morally irresponsible. And Paul will say the same thing about the household of God, the church. And what does he tell us? He tells us repeatedly that the only man who is qualified for a position of greater authority and leadership 
in the church is the man who has first ordered his own household well. We see this in 1 Timothy chapter 4. And we also see it, by the way, in Proverbs 16 and verse 32, which says this, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. So again, there's that personal responsibility. Like if you have a temper problem, if you have a lust problem, you have a being critical with other people problem, before you even think about going to rule the city, before you even think about, oh, we need to change the way that the county commission is voting about school budgets and blah, blah, blah. We need to change the sheriff and blah. No, man, rule your spirit. Learn how to be self-controlled. This is the way that culture and community is going to be changed. And by the way, failure to heed this obvious feature of the created order and of the created world is why so many churches are dumpster fires floating down Main Street. It's because men who knew theology, at least at a bookish level, and stood behind their seminary degrees, mistakenly thought that they were spiritually mature people. And so they were elevated to church offices, but nobody bothered to look at their lives. Nobody bothered to say to their wife, maybe she wouldn't have been honest anyway, but spend time with their wife and say, what is this woman like? Is she respectful? Or is she the brawling wife? Is she loud and she posts things on Facebook and you're like, oh, I think she might be a feminist. Right? We don't want to ask those questions. We don't want to examine it. So we ignore it. And then what do we do? We elect people, both elders and pastors, to offices in the church out of desperation or sheer laziness, right? We don't see the problems in our churches because oftentimes we don't want to see them because if we see them, then we are responsible to deal with them, right? We ignore basic wisdom principles. So what happens particularly in the church is we elect these unqualified men to office. Their wives are brawling gossips whose opinions would probably fit better with the cast of the view than they would with scripture. Their kids are hellions on Hot Wheels. And maybe they're even known in the community for less than savory business practices. But maybe they make a lot of money and maybe they're influential in the community and maybe we're desperate. So here we are and we've got unqualified men at the helm of the church. Now we've disobeyed scripture. We've disobeyed the clear commandment of God for something that was expedient. Do you honestly think at this point that that kind of man is in any position to speak boldly to a culture that is headed off Niagara Falls at a thousand miles an hour? No, because his own life is disordered. This is the rule. Get your own household in order before you would ever, ever go to other people and people in your community and teach them how to get their life in order. Why do we think that we would make great world political leaders when our own households are in dilapidated disrepair? Right? We can't even balance our bank account. We can't hold a basic job. We can't even keep a relationship for more than six minutes. And yet we say, I know how to change society and culture. And so we take the wisdom of Jesus and the biblical authors. We need to recognize our own propensity, and it's the propensity, by the way, of every human heart, to think that the main problem and therefore the starting point for change is outside of us. It's not. 
You need to start with yourself. The way we combat this misguided notion is by getting our own lives in order first. So don't think big, think small, because that's where change is actually possible and within our control. And likewise, I would say, especially to Christians, we would do well to stop blaming the world for all of our problems and to look in the mirror. What does scripture teach us? Well, it teaches us that judgment begins with the household of God. And so I believe that's where we must begin as well. We need to look at our own lives and our own churches, and we need to examine them. And when we do that, as I've said before, what we're going to find is that we have weak, soft, effeminate men in our pulpits. We have men who love the praise of the world and so are unwilling to speak bold truth. They're unwilling to take on Black Lives Matter even though it is a pagan, Marxist, feminist, disgusting, vile organization, right? But they won't address that because it's not culturally cool and it's probably going to cost them tithes. It's going to cost them church attenders, particularly if your people are not used to you preaching boldly, right? You look in our churches and you find men in the pulpit who have failed their own wives and children. Their households are a mess. Their daughters are sleeping around. Their sons are unruly and disrespectful. And yet they go in the pulpit every week and presume to lecture everyone else on the myriad ways in which the world has been corrupted. And the thing is, we may not even be able to put words to it, but people can see hypocrisy. Many of these men in pulpits are in crippling debt. They're dependent on the state for health care. Their children are indoctrinated by the public school systems, and their wives, as I said before, are gossips and loudmouth feminists. And they refuse to preach specifically about the hot button issues of, say, biblical sexual ethics that will get their little limp wrists slapped by the politically correct Gestapo. Here's the reality if our culture has gone to hell in one oversized handbasket, it's in no small measure because our pulpits gave them directions. So more to the point for us today, where do we begin in seeking change? Well, I think one helpful place is with Wendell Berry. In his essay, Think Little, Wendell Berry nails each one of us right square between the eyes. He says this, A man who is willing to undertake the discipline and the difficulty of mending his own ways is worth more than a hundred who are insisting merely that the government and the industries mend their ways. A couple who make a good marriage and raise healthy, morally competent children are serving the world's future more directly and surely than any political leader, though they never utter a public word. In other words, mend your own ways first. Write the things you know are wrong about yourself. Build a strong family and household. Invest in your children. And instead of crying for more government intervention, we'll start cultivating habits marked by discipline. Do hard things and push yourself. Now, what I want to do at this point is jump into a little bit of the how-to section. One of the things we said at the very beginning of this show and season is that we want to be practical. So how to, how do we start at home making change, particularly in this cultural moment? Well, we should start with mending our own ways and building strong households. 
This is one of the primary tasks that we've been given as men and women throughout Scripture is to build strong households. But the question at this point remains, how ought we to do that work? And it's going to be related to some of the shortcomings of the church and Christian families today. So here are a few practical solutions that aim at only a few of the key problems within the church at this present moment. Number one, order every area of your life and household according to Scripture. It was Jesus who said that we ought to build our house on the rock of God's Word in Matthew 7, 24. And this means ordering our family life in the fear of the Lord. It means that the principles for how we pursue education, where our wife is employed, how we use our time, how we conduct family worship, how many children we have, how we invest our money, well, all of these decisions and life choices ought to come from the scriptures, from the Bible. Our views for structuring the good life don't come from good housekeeping, Cosmo, or People magazine. Among other things, your household should be financially stable. It should be debt-free. You should be able to practice frugality. And as we've talked about before and will continue to talk about, your house should be anti-fragile. As best you can, you should be working toward owning your own productive property. And in the show notes at the end, I'll provide a link to it. But again, this is a plug for a good practical guide to household building and some of the things that we're talking about just now. And that is a book from C.R. Wiley. And it's called Man of the House. Again, I'll have a link in the show notes at the bottom. One of the biggest problems that we have in the church today is that people pay lip service to the scripture, but we don't actually order our lives according to it. We read passages like Genesis and we say, be fruitful and multiply. Oh, I love that verse. Okay, so you and your wife have been married for 10 years. You have no children. Why? Well, maybe there's infertility struggles, and that's understandable, and that's heartbreaking for many couples. It's very difficult. But so many more people just choose not to have children because they want to pursue their career. They want to make sure that they have a long retirement where they get to enjoy themselves. But the problem is, this is not obedience to the scripture. You could say very similar things, as we said in the last episode, about homeschooling or Christian education in general. Well, why do you send your kids to public education when it flies in the face of biblical principle? Well, mostly because it's convenient. So what we need to do is start looking at Scripture as encompassing all of life. That's point number one. Order every area of your life and household according to Scripture. Number two, you need to create margin in your life and avoid overload. Now, one of the crucial ways the family and the household are being divided today is because many of us have accepted life on the crazy train of busyness and overload. Just like our credit cards, we live maxed out lives. We have too much going on and too little time to do it. We are overcommitted at church, at work, and through competitive sports. And each one of these things pulls us away from each other and away from the home. Now, in and of themselves, these things don't seem all that dangerous. What's the problem with? say, playing competitive football or competitive soccer. 
Well, nothing in it itself, but the problem becomes when you have six kids and you're chasing all six of them around from sports, you're never together as a family, right? You're overloaded, you're too busy, so you don't have time for family worship. Even Christian people will be participating in sports on Sunday that prohibit them from being able to spend time in fellowship with the church or in hospitality on Sunday afternoons. And so what we need is to spend time thinking about what is essential. What's essential in your life and according to the scripture, we prioritize those things first, and then we're forced to get rid of the things that don't fit in our schedule. So if strong households are our priority, and certainly they are God's, then our investments of money and time should reflect that. So again, that was point number two, create margin in your life and avoid overload. The third point is this, get your financial household in order so that your wife's main work can be in the home. I know, hear me out. If you happen to be a feminist and you're listening to this show, you are just insanely triggered by what I said. But I would encourage you to read the letters that Paul wrote to Timothy and the letter that he wrote to Titus. It's very, very clear in those letters, if we're willing to read them on their own terms, that the primary role for women, especially young women of childbearing years, is to get married and have children and to be sanctified, Paul says, through the rearing of children. Paul does not say that the main aim of your life is to go have a very lucrative career as a woman or that you should go to college first and put off raising and having children or starting a family as long as humanly possible. In fact, those things fly in the face of clear biblical commands. The problem is that we live in a feminist culture, and so we take our cues from that pagan culture and not from the Word of God. But I want to encourage you, read Titus, read Timothy, and ask God to open your eyes to see what is clear about women and the household. So, back to the point. Women are made to operate primarily inside the economy of the household. This is what the Bible teaches quite clearly. But here's the rub. It requires wise financial management from husbands to make this a plausible reality. A man must provide in such a way that his wife is freed up so that she can care for her young children in the home. And here's something to think about. If you both went to college and you got sixty dollars to $100,000 of student loans so that you could go become a teacher and work a job for $30,000 a year, well, first of all, that really sucks, right? It's hard to then say one of you is going to stay at home, and particularly it should be the wife. So what you need to think about, and hopefully some people are going to be teenagers and you know parents of teenagers, so you're going to be listening to this, you're going to be thinking about this, the last thing you want to do is go create debt. That is going to stand in the way of not only family, starting a family, but it's also going to stand in the way of the woman being able to stay at home. So try to avoid debt if at all possible. And if you do have debt, which many of us do, then men and fathers, it's your responsibility to work jobs that pay you well enough and to then pay off those debts and manage it in a way that your wife can stay at home. So this is also going to mean that you have to make decisions that often cut against the grain of a consumer-driven culture. You're probably not going to be able to drive brand new vehicles, unless, of course, you're a doctor, a surgeon, a lawyer, etc. 
it's mostly, for most people, it's going to take frugality, sacrifice, and intentionality. Now, too often what happens is that men and women make stupid financial decisions, and I'm one of them. I've been there. We buy brand new vehicles, we overspend on a home so that we can impress our friends, or we adopt a standard of living that requires the wife to go to work. But then we say things like, well, she can't stay at home. But really, those are choices that we have made. It's in our control. And husbands, wives, we need to get our finances in order so that you can be at home as a woman. This is where God wants you. So this leads into the fourth point, which is this. Get your kids out of public school starting yesterday. Now, if you haven't yet done so, I would encourage you to listen to the last episode. I go into much more detail about homeschooling and why I think for Christians, you need to have a Christian education. I think it's absolutely vital, particularly given the state of the public education system right now. It poses a very clear and present danger to everything that you're called to do as a Christian parent. And so here's the deal. Once you've got your finances in order, once you've freed your wife up to do so, her role primarily is going to be in the home rearing children. And for a lot of people, this is going to mean homeschooling. Now, again, for some people, Christian classical school, whatever, that's cool. You're infinitely wealthy. Great idea. But this is a very, very simple thing. Like, Christian children need a Christian education. The student will become like the teacher. It's also, I will say, very hard to implement, particularly if it means getting out of debt, but this is what we need to do. Of all the reasons our children are being lost to the world, this is perhaps chief among them. We keep sending them to the state, we send them to Caesar, and they come back as Romans. And similarly, I would say this, pastors need to get off government assistance and lead by example. One of the problems I've seen is even in Reformed churches, there will be pastors and families on state-sponsored health care. There are pastors and their families who go to public schools. They receive food stamps and various other forms of state assistance. And what's fascinating to me, all the coronavirus stuff happened. The government said shut down the churches. You can't sing in worship. You have to wear a mask. All these things. Meanwhile, you can protest downtown if you're Black Lives Matter. No big deal. But it's interesting to me that in all these churches where pastors were on government assistance, and that's a common practice, even in reform circles, they were like, no, we need to obey, guys. We need to do what the state tells us. Romans 13. Right? So this changes your outlook on life when you're ensnared in welfare. Your allegiance is to the state. So don't do that. That's bad. Your kids need to get out of public school and pastors need to address this issue. This is why we're losing our children. How many pastors are brave enough to address this from the pulpit? Here's the deal. The last thing in the world we need right now is for our own people to be slaves to the state. Like, how are you going to preach boldly if you're a slave to the state? We do not need the amount of government leverage that we currently have hanging over our heads. So I would encourage Christians to get your possessions together and flee from Egypt. This is a metaphor, of course. But you need to order your own households in such a way that you are as free as humanly possible from the tyranny of the state. God's intention, as always, we see this throughout Scripture, is for his people to live free and be sons of their all-providing father, 
not wards of the centralized Papa state that is the U.S. federal government. The grand experiment of public education has failed, and this is something even secularists admit, so I would encourage you Christians, it's time to move on. Your kids need a Christian education. Fifth, you need to find a church that preaches the specifics, not just vague gospel-centered generalities. For all their self-righteous religiosity, Jesus condemned the Pharisees for being at core antinomian, or anti-law. That is, they rejected the whole counsel of God, particularly the law and its positive use for ordering life. And so wherever the law is not taught in all its glorious detail, a people will invent their own law and will become a law unto themselves. We see this in Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 through 20. This is what happens in many gospel-coalition-inspired, gospel-centered churches. The gospel's only work, it is assumed, is to proclaim redemptive hope to wrath-receiving sinners. End of story, full stop, and cue all the people who write into me and say, why do you have to talk about masculinity? Can't you just talk about the gospel? Now, while it's absolutely true and necessary that the gospel should be central to our preaching, it's also absolutely true and necessary that the effect of the gospel is to write the law of God on the hearts of his people by the Holy Spirit. We see this in Jeremiah 31, verse 33. What we need is moral instruction on sexuality from Genesis 1 and 2, including what is the aim of masculinity femininity, marriage, household, and children. We need preaching that addresses the evils of effeminacy in particular details, as well as homosexuality, transgenderism, feminism, and dependency on the state rather than on God. What happens apart from this kind of teaching is that our lives remain in moral ruin, except now we have the illusion of having clean consciences. We're forgiven for starting a dumpster fire in our own life, but no one ever tells us how to put it out or how to build something better and less combustible. We need a positive vision and a blueprint for rebuilding. So finally, I want to conclude this episode with the words of Mother Teresa, which have always inspired and encouraged me. She said this, If you want to bring happiness to the whole world, go home and love your family. Well, I hope this episode has been encouraging for you. I'll have a list of books, resources, links at the end in the show notes. I would encourage you, if you've been blessed, benefited from the show, you can sign up as a supporter on Patreon. And right now, if you sign up as a VIP patron, you will receive a 16-ounce pint glass. So you can let the next pint be on us. Until next time, men, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men.